0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Sounds Like Comics, the podcast devoted to all things comic books in movies and TV. I'm Luke. I'm Jay and welcome to the podcast. Today's topic Batman Begins. It is the start of the Christopher Nolan Batman film series The Dark Knight. It stars Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne Batman with Michael Caine, Liam Neeson, Katie Holmes Gary Oldman, Killian Murphy, Tom Wilkinson, Rutger Hauer, Ken Watanabe, and Morgan Freeman in supporting roles. This is your warning. We will be talking spoilers. Yeah, and the...
1: It's hard to state accurately how important this movie was in terms of where we currently are in superhero movies because... You know, there hadn't been a Batman
0: movie since,
1: was it 98 we got Batman 97, Robin?
0: 97, that's when we got that movie. And from that to this, wow.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's night and day. I mean, it's not just the fact that technologies had progressed a lot in that eight years in terms of like what you could do on TV and film. But the, you know, we'd had a year later, we'd had Blade. From Batman Robin, so we went from the corny, campy ridiculousness of that movie to Blade a year later, and then Spider-Man, X-Men, and they're like, "Hey, you can, you can actually do superhero movies, and people show up and like them, and you can make money on these." And DC like was very tentative getting back in, and then, you know, they announced, "Oh yeah, we're going to do a Batman movie," and everyone's like, "Yeah, Batman, cool, whatever." And they announced Christian Bale as Batman. Everyone's like, "Oh yeah, that's a that's that's a good get. Like that's a smart casting for Batman." And then yeah, and Michael Caine is Alfred. And like, oh yeah, yeah, that sounds great. And they like, and Christopher Nolan's going to do it, and everyone's like, who? You know, the guy <laughs> and from how... the Mento. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He did The Prestige, and it was like, blah, blah, blah. like I like The Prestige, but that guy's doing Batman. Mm, all right. And yeah, and I mean that's that's the reason for the tone of the DC EU is this movie and the success of this movie, which is why it's taken them so long to crack jokes in their movies. When you get to, you know, uh Shazam and Aquaman and the Suicide Squad, you know, that's like the reason why the Snyder movies specifically were so like Ugh was because this movie was so good as were the other Nolan movies and the m- amount of money they made and how people responded to them. And yeah, and so many
0: things this movie did. Um, oh, so many. I mean, this movie was mentioned a couple of times when we did our review of the Tim Story Fantastic Four movie. Yeah. The facts that that movie and this movie came out in the same year, I think months apart. Yeah. And you're right, the DCEU, I mean, look at Man of Steel, Christopher Nolan's name is on that. Yeah. And apparently at one time, they were wanting the Christian Bale Batman to be the Batman in that universe, but it only ended up being three films. And I'm saying only, a classic trilogy. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, darker in tone, DC films have lightened over time. But what's worth noting about this movie is that it pretty much is a reboot. Yeah. The world we live in now, most things are reboots and remakes. But going back to 2005, instead of doing Batman 5, a sequel to Batman and Robin, they did the whole thing. You know, apparently the producers of Bond their inspiration for Casino Royale and casting Daniel Craig was Batman Begins. Yeah. They'd I remember seen, that at the time. They'd seen what they'd done with this film and thought, let's, let's also do that. I mean, I'm not yeah, saying that dying of a day was as bad as Batman and Robin.
1: Yeah, no, which it wasn't. It's just the fact that they had recently reacquired the rights to Casino Royale, which had been licensed separately and they're like, yeah, you know what? We've just continued on with these things for decades, and I don't know if anyone actually knows how James Bond became James Bond. And it's just look and look how well it worked for Daniel Craig. I mean, his Bond movie is fantastic. Um, I'm, you know, we're both really looking forward to No Time to Die. Um, but yeah, and again, like I said, that's all. That's Thanks in very large part to how good this reboot was Um, to being more realistic. You know, that's why Craig basically doesn't use gadgets in his bond movies Um, using I wouldn't say more grounded storylines, but definitely less like mustache twirling, like secret hideout with an entire army of, like goons, levels of ridiculous. At least initially on the Bond side, and then again, yeah, it's because of the trimmed down, serious. Like, what? How would it? This work for real? Of this movie, um, and it's. It, there's so much
0: to say about this film. The cinematography. Oh, okay. Uh, before we go any further, I'm gonna let's let's just go back and let's go back to early 2003. Christopher Nolan and David S. Goya So obviously Nolan directing, also a writer on the film. Goya, another writer. And this would have been around about the time that he wrote and directed Blade Trinity. Yeah. They began early development on Batman Begins, 2003, aiming for a darker, more realistic tone compared to the previous films. A primary goal for their vision was to engage the audience's emotional investment in both the Batman, and Bruce Wayne's identities of the lead character, which, you know, they, they definitely do. You definitely yeah. see a distinction in both portrayals by Bale. The film, which was principally shot in the United Kingdom, Iceland, and Chicago, relied heavily on traditional stunts and miniature effects with computer-generated imagery being used in a minimal capacity compared to other action films. And comic book storylines such as The Man Who Falls, Batman Year One, and Batman The Long Halloween served as inspiration. We're talking budget before. It grossed over 48 million in its opening weekend in North America, eventually grossing over 373 million worldwide. The film was met with largely positive reviews with praise for the tone, Bale's performance, action sequences, score, direction, and the emotional weight compared to previous Batman films. I mean, this film was doing so much more compared to those other ones. And just like most people, 89 Batman and Batman Returns, excellent. Love those movies. And there is things to like about Forever and kind of Batman and Robin. But this film... It's it's doing so much more with the character and and I just I loved watching it for that. You know, I said the box office a so three hundred and seventy-three point six million, the budget 150 million. That's how yeah. much they put into it, and obviously it was a, a big hit for them. Yeah, which is crazy because I would have sworn they made more
1: on the worldwide box office for this film because they made so much more money on the sequels. I mean, I guess once people had seen this, I'm like, no, 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 seriously, you have to watch this Batman movie. It's incredible. And it must have been, uh, they must have made that again on a home media release.
0: But I mean, yes, they've certainly continued to make money on it. I mean, Dark Knight, Heath Ledger was the Joker. That, that's the movie most people go to when talking about this trilogy of films. They they cite that movie as being the best and everything else. Whereas this film, so that's you know, again, it did well at the box office. But that list of praise I just went through, like critically, this movie was so well received, Warner Brothers was still, you know, in a position to let's yeah, let's do more and let's spend a little bit more. And You know, they got rewarded for it because audiences came in masses to those sequels. But this first film, I agree with you. I would have thought that the box office would have been high because I'm pretty sure Superman Returns financially was more successful than this film. Yeah. um, And that never got a sequel. No, (laughs) No, it it never did. (laughs) A one and done for Brandon Ralph. Yeah.
1: Um, And, you know, talking about the production methods of this, um, Christopher Nolan insisted on using a camera with film, traditional film, rather than going to a fully digital camera, which in terms of getting these movies scaled up for 4K was a godsend. I'm not sure if anyone is aware, but George Lucas went for fully digital cameras for the Star Wars prequels with thinking he was future-proofing them which it made the digital effects better it made it run better in the cinemas of the era um, it made the sound quality and all that stuff better and everything to do with the movies easier and better to upgrade and upscale in terms of modern technology except for the visuals because they were digitally locked at 2k resolution and they had to like really go in and spend some serious money uh at lucasfilm now disney to upscale those to 4k for their 4k release box set whereas these with a traditional film as long as you have a nice print as you know movies this recent more are you can just project it on a larger screen and re-record at 4k oh
0: wow i didn't realize that's, that's that was the process and so that's one
1: positive thing. That's why movies from the seventies, like you can there's so many 4K rips because they can just grab the original, you know, uh 78 millimeter and project it up onto a, a larger screen. Like the alien movie 4K by Ridley Scott is amazing in 4K because of that process. Um and the 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 miniatures I watched I watched a YouTube channel by Corridor Crew and they do a series called VFX Reacts. And they recently had Seth Rogen on. Uh, We've discussed this previously. And he, like you and I, and a lot of people I speak to, love older movies, especially the ones that use miniatures. And he said he's gone to bat on every single (laughs) one of the movies he's been involved with that requires special effects and said, I want to use miniatures. And the studio always, that's the one thing they bounce back on. They're like, we're not using miniatures. And he's like, and uh, they're, he's, they're like, why? And there's like, that's old technology. It's stupid. No one uses that. And also it's too expensive, um, which is the actual real reason. It, it's part of the reason. in like, that the fact they have this, old, this idea that old effects are outdated effects, regardless of how high the quality is um, and why things like that age so well compared to, especially old digital effects. And his response is always, but you allow like Steven Spielberg and Christopher Nolan to use them. And again, a studio exec will hit back, yeah, but that's Christopher Nolan and Steven Spielberg. And again, <laughs> like, so how Christopher Nolan got an okay to use miniatures on his film, but, you know, I, I'm still wondering because he was not yet an established name.
0: No, I think this, because you mentioned The Prestige before, I'm pretty sure he did The Prestige after this. This movie is the first time that he'd worked with Michael Caine, and I'm pretty sure Michael Caine's in The Prestige as well, isn't he? He is, yeah. It's yeah, Bale's fun. in it as well, and Hugh Jackman. It's a good movie. And, it David, is good movie. I, and David Bowie. I just like to start it out right? <laughs> <'cause it's> <laughs> yeah, that's true. But from this movie onwards, Michael Caine has appeared in every Nolan film. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm um, pretty sure but... this is number four. But I yeah, I mean, he had made good movies, critically well received, but it wasn't exactly making big bank at the box office. Yeah. But they allowed him a lot of free free reign. I mean, I don't know to be honest, like how the relationship started, like who went to who. But Warner Brothers clearly wanted him as director. And that's how he was able to get things like miniatures. I mean, the use of miniatures and a lot of the practical effects, it's why you can watch it now, whether it's DVD, Blu-ray, 4K, it looks excellent. It looks really good. Like It's dated really well. And Gotham has always been portrayed in an interesting way. It's always looked like yesteryear, present day, futuristic at times, but it's always been... Out of time. Yeah. And it's always worked really well. It's like if, you know, like Batman, the animated series, like the art decor or the presentation of the buildings and how they chop and change with the technology they have and they don't have. There's blimps in the sky. So Gotham has always had an interesting style and it's captured on this. But again, it just, you watch this film and it looks like it's a new film. Yeah, it does. Um and speaking of the
1: character of Gotham, the reason why this one looks so good uh even compared to the this it's two own two sequels was being filmed in the UK. They actually rented an airplane hangar because a normal sound stage wasn't going to be big enough because they actually this this cost on the sets they built I think like three or four blocks. Of buildings with you know they had street lights wired up and they had uh manhole covers and things of this nature and and like small like four-story tenements because that's how tall the the hangar was and they had uh a series of sprinklers set along the roof of the building so they could do like rain sequences they could be all perfectly lit because even though they were doing outdoor scenes because it was so perfectly set up they could do it as if it was on a sound stage because they had complete control of the weather like that's where the end sequence of the movie when the the pressure from, from the mains being turned to steam blowing those manhole covers that was done practically on that sound stage in that hangar uh and that's why it has so much more character because they didn't just do like what they did for later movies and like it was just film in Chicago. Like we're we're using that for daylight street level things with multiple cars and stuff. Like, p- we, people can pick out those shots. People, I don't think a lot of people film in Chicago. No one will notice. Well, people in Chicago notice, and anyone who's ever like travelled to Chicago will notice. And once you know where it is, you're like, oh, I, can see, I can, I can, I do notice a difference between. The Dark Knight or The Dark Knight Rises compared to the Gotham of Batman Begins, and that's why they, you know, once they finished production, those sets were torn down because they had to give back the hangar in an empty, like, vacant space, and they were not going to spend
0: the money to rebuild those sets for the sequels. Wow. Uh, okay, I didn't know that. I mean, I I did know that they built the Batcave. Yeah, it's a massive full-scale set. Previous Batman movies, it was a combination of live set and map paintings. Everything yeah. you see when he's in the Batcave, they built that.
1: Yeah, that it's looks so, it looks phenomenal.
0: Well, yeah, it's a real cave. A, they actually yeah. made a real Batcave. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Like most of this movie, and again, that's, it's just aged, aged so well. We should probably yeah. get into... The characters are actually before we do. Obviously, we talked about Christopher Nolan, director. I mentioned David S. Goya. It was Nolan that brought on Goya as a writer because he wanted to have a comic book expert to help craft the screenplay. That's why he which, was first brought in. Yeah, which you know, that's something that
1: the Marvel movies uh, partially credit their success to by having actual comic book writers as actual consultants on the script and everything else. Like before long before they start doing anything uh, in terms of casting and location scouting, they have an initial mock-up and they hand it to uh, the characters they want to use and they hand it to comic book writers and they go, Oh, eh, that's not how that character works. You might want to use this character instead, or yeah, yeah, that's not too bad, but you tweak this and tweak that and you know then when it goes back to the screenwriters to do a full draft it again gets looked over by the comic book guys to be like yeah you got it Or no no nah, you failed there you just need to you need to do this and they have that big resource of like we want to do something like this what have you guys got what would you do if this was a comic or, well we'd use this guy because that guy fits that position or we'd use this doohickey from this storyline, because that basically is a version of what you're talking about. Um, and like that's something Nolan knew right at the get go. Like, eh, I like Batman, but I
0: kind of want someone who knows him a lot better than I do. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Like, you know, whether you're white, whether you're writing one film, two films, three films, go to the people that put out monthly stories. Yeah and you know some writers put out two comics a month Like uh, they know this stuff yeah and they've been working on this
1: stuff for years and years and they've probably been into this stuff for their lives it's the same when you you're doing a movie based on an actual event you talk to the people who were in the event and were the you, you know you're doing oh, i'm doing your your character we need them represented So can you please come on and consult and speak to our actor who is going to be playing you? Because those are the experts. Um, But yeah, it's so strange that it took like Hollywood that long to figure that one out. Um, The only real exception to that rule is the Batman series from the 60s. One of the people who they went to to write a few episodes was one of the, uh, it was Bill Finger. No, you're not, Bill Finger. No, yeah, it was Bill Finger. Uh, he wrote the Eggman episode, or was it the uh the King Pharaoh episode of this that series, which he basically just ate the comic book he'd written from it like ten years prior, because he did do a little bit of dabbling in TV writing at the time. But mm, that'd be interesting yeah.
0: to, to go back and watch. I didn't didn't know that. Yeah. Christian Bale, Bruce Wayne, Batman. Before this, he made that film, The Machinist. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, I have. And it's he the was film, yeah. a skeleton wearing skin. <laughs> he lost an insane amount of weight. And he wasn't quite at that weight at the time, but he, he was still wasn't back to his regular size when he was first auditioning for, for the role of Batman. And they're like... Yeah. You, you're not big enough. Like you need to go away. And he came back, and he was too big. It was then too big. Yeah, by the time they started filming, <laughs> so he had to he had to downsize. But uh, I mean, Christian Bale, like whether it's you know the Dark Knight trilogy or you know other films that he's made, the guy's a personality. <laughs> like I mean, did you he hear? Is. You probably have like all people or most people have that behind the scenes audio from when he was doing Terminator Genesis. He just missed yeah. it a crew member. I mean, this is a guy that's got so much passion for you know any project that he works on. And it shows with this, and like in his, his approach, that like he decided early on in his in the audition process that he didn't want to play Batman straight, but to play him as a rage-filled monster, figuring that it might polarize writer and director Nolan. But to his delight, Nolan was thrilled with his off-kilter interpretation. I mean, he wanted a clear distinction between Bruce Wayne and Batman. We've heard the yeah. Batman voice before, <laughs> not like this. And and you know, the Batman voice in this film, it's tame compared to what we get in the in the sequels. But with this one, Bale lost his voice three times
1: during filming. <laughs>
0: And that was I'm not surprised. altering his voice. <laughs> I mean, his yeah. Batman is insane. Like it's so it's so gruff. And but again, this movie, you can still hear every word. the, yeah. the sequels you start to lose him a bit more so in visors. But yeah. Such a intense Batman voice. And just hearing that that was his audition process, <laughs> Nolan liked it, and he clearly just lean into it and that's the batman we got
1: yeah and you know anyone who had seen him in american psycho was like oh, he can do bruce wayne uh because he knows how to play rich mommy upper class like you know trust fund baby um which also helped on the physical side because you know for that movie the character of uh of the book is so obsessed with physical appearance and being like you know, Patrick Bateman and being like a, a, a version of like male perfection. Like, oh he knows how to do the physicality. I've watched American psycho, uh, which only helped fuel the idea of like, Oh, he just need to learn a little bit of choreography and like in a Batman suit. Do they even need him? Like this covers so much of the actor. Like they could throw anyone in that thing. Um, But yeah, it's every, I, as I said, when, working uh or going to a comic book store at the time and hearing about this everyone i spoke to was oh that's that's a, that's a genius casting no one is going to question like why would you choose that guy to be batman um yeah and then we should probably speak to you know this his number two sur- surrogate father like the second most important character in any batman movie alfred michael Caine, which he's got such a fatherly presence anyway. Like, and yeah, he's to anyone, even those who grew up in his era, like my dad um, growing up on young Michael Caine movies, uh, like the Italian job and like all the rest of it. It's like, yeah, Michael Caine is like, Alfred is a fatherly figure. It's, just, it's a no brainer. How did no
0: one else think of this? Yeah. I, I like Michael Caine like most. Michael Caine, for me, is very good at doing Michael Caine. (laughs) He is. Some say he's the best Michael Caine. (laughs) Yeah, some say he and yeah, he he does it better than anybody. But he does Michael Caine. So I think he is excellent as Alfred. But he looks like Michael Caine. He sounds like Michael Caine. (laughs) But he's fantastic. Like he, he he really is a good Alfred, and you're right with the the parental side that we do get we get to see a softer side of alfred in this and and we get the jokes too like bruce wayne is announced dead or presumed dead so everything got left in alfred's name and there's that gag on the plane and he's like oh you can take the car but you know bring it back with a full tank there's some you know good good gags in there and
1: yeah, Michael. Caine, and what's the just, point of doing all those pull if you can't lift <laughs> one simple bloody
0: log? <laughs> that's it. That's it. So you you, you went into a Michael Kane there, but he yeah. he does it all with a with a twinkle in his eye. But then when the first time that he sees Bruce bruised in bed after being out on patrol, like you see it, like you you see the concern. Yeah, I mean you're always going to get a good performance out of Michael Kane, but but he is Michael Kane. As Alpha, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, yeah, um, he, he's excellent now.
1: Yeah. Um Ra's al Ghul, the one credited as a Raz al Ghul, Ken Watanabe, who's in a, you know, br- uh, very briefly at the start, but he's, he's great. Uh, I mean, he's gets to be just stoic. Not a lot of lines of dialogue just gets to be st- stood there, uh, sat there. not even stood as a, uh, a quite intense man. Um, and then you have who I always considered the correct Ra's al Ghul, and it's also almost the interpretation by the time you get to Dark Knight Rises of Ducard, Raz Ghul played by Liam Neeson, who what like we've seen him he's almost become a parody of himself thanks to all the all the taken movies and the gray and the commuter and all the other ones that we've had since then. But back here, 2005 Lee Neeson, I don't think he'd been anywhere near an action movie. Like the closest he'd been to an action movie before this was maybe Rob Roy or some, or oh, Star Wars when he played quite Gon but that was it. And then he plays Raz al Ghul and you're like, perfect. And every, yeah. every yeah. line of dialogue, you know, everything he does, he's, he's got even more screen presence than Christian Bale, and he needs to as well because once you put Christian Bale in that Batman suit, you better have a
0: pretty strong actor to go up against it. Yeah, and yeah, they definitely had it with Neeson. But I read that a lot of the time he was having to crouch slightly because he was just too tall, <laughs> <laughs> taller than Batman. Taller than yeah. the ninjas, so he had to crouch a little bit. You know the the bit where him and Bruce are on the ice, yeah, in the training. the The ice was starting to crack. They finished filming for the day, and the very next day, the ice had gone. Oh, so this is, um, you know, this is Nolan making a practical film. <laughs> yeah yeah so he's you know if he could do it practically he clearly did but it, it looks it looks fantastic oh you know with with the choreography with the fight scenes right what nolan would do he'd have the actors start to finish do all the fights but they would do all the stunts themselves and then he'd bring in the stunt people and he'd shoot the same fight again, and as much as possible, he would just use the actors. And only cutting the stunt people where he absolutely needed to. So for Bale, he had to perform 16 separate fights in this film. Yeah, and it it shows in the final product. I think,
1: depending on who your your crew is, um, you know corridor crew do us also do a channel um stuntmen react where they get in professional stuntmen and break down site, uh, stunt work from real scenes and they've done a lot they've had in a lot of the uh, marvel stunt crew um uh, the guys who've worked on the daredevil netflix series the guy who does black panther uh, gee um who does a lot of the stunt work there the guy who does the, the in costume spider-man stuff for to- uh, tom holland and all of them talk about you like generally speaking directors when it comes to a, a a fight sequence or a stunt sequence will hand over the the filming of that to a second unit director who's usually a stunt guy because they know how to block out a sequence and use the camera to enhance motions and like, and hopefully they have them in the room when it comes to the editing, because like the fight scenes in this are great because he's using so much of the Christian Bale stuff and having and because he's do, he's he's filming them identically, the shot choices, the same sort of choices he would have had with the actors as he did with the stuntmen, because it's filmed in the same way. Because you want to hold on the action as much as possible, and you don't want to keep cutting away every cut is something that the audience has to do a very quick recalculation of who's where again, what did he just do? How did he get out of that? Did that thing land? I didn't see it land. I I assume it landed because there was a sound effect noise and it's all done in like a, like a dance with whatever the, wherever the cameras are because you want to make sure that the cameras can see the action and it needs to be in focus. And there's all these rules in terms of like if you start with the the hero on the left and the villain on the right no matter what changes you have to do you have to keep the hero on the left and hero on the right so people don't get confused especially if they're both wearing black which you know throughout the training sequence of this everyone's kind of dressed in the same thing Uh, and if you are going to switch sides you need to have the actors physically move in a way that the cam- but generally the camera will move with the movement and keep them on one side or another. Which, having watched so many of these, I can appreciate when it's done well and done poorly. And Chris- uh, Christopher Nolan clearly understood, like, I'm just going to film this twice. Film this twice with the actors. And, yeah, it's- I would never have thought them to do that. Because I've never heard of them doing that way at all.
0: Like, well, I think they were very fortunate having someone in bail that could do it. Like he could absolutely. Do the, he could do the physical part. Because I was reading that he was able to go to the monitor, he'd watch the replay of the sequence that they wanted from him, and then he could just go and do it. And then he'd go wow. on to the next thing. So they were very fortunate having somebody, as you've said, looks like Bruce Wayne, but then he's able to put on the suit, which apparently he absolutely hated. And he, <laughs> it gave him headaches wearing the cowl. And he he poured that frustration into his performance of Batman. <laughs> he utilized that. But they were so fortunate yeah. having someone in him who he could play dual roles and have them appear. So they are really two characters. I mean, fantastic actor. And yeah, impressive what he was doing. Stuntwise, you know they they did in this film and not the sequels utilize flash fighting, so we get a lot of that whether it's the flashing or the the quick edits. A lot of time when Batman is fighting, there's a lot of like quick edits and it's very close to him, so you don't always somehow see what you're doing or what he's doing.
1: Yeah, uh, that's probably a hangover from at the time we had been a big, big movie. Was the Born Identity with Matt Damon because I think from memory that was the first one to use that. Because although Matt Damon did learn the choreography and did put in a lot of work on that, the director thought it would deliver more energy into the fight sequences if you added more cuts. Uh, yeah, and, and it he, became yeah. a, kind of a style of the mid 2000s when it came to fight sequences of using an excessive amount of cuts. Uh, it makes sense with Batman because
0: he's supposed to appear like a supernatural force, and that's what I was going to say. It it does feel like you're being pulled into the action, and you're seeing Batman from the bad guy's perspective, and you're yeah. pulled in closer. I mean, I yeah, they moved away from that with the sequels. Uh, yeah, I can I can see I can see why why they'd use that. Yeah. We've talked about like, the great calibre of actors in this film. Katie Holmes is in it. And I'm not saying she's not a good actor. But if one of these things is not like the other, it <laughs> does stick out. And obviously she didn't come back for the dark night. We've got Maggie Gyllenhaal taking over the character, Rachel Dawes. But, you know, they wanted the girl next door type. And I don't know how many years this would have been since Dawson's Creek, but she definitely had that girl next door quality about her. And I think she's yeah. fine in the movie. I think she's good. Yeah, um,
1: and you know it's it's a typical thing when you're casting that you know they, less so now, but it still happens. But when you're you're like oh I need I need a love interest and they think and they get kind of like tunnel visioned of like who is our main character going to just and the audience know just by seeing this woman that she is going to be the love interest and like of course he would fall in love with this person and you're like yeah there should be some character reasons for it as well you can't just be like 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 you know on the script sheet love interest and then figure out the rest on like later um and as you said it's not like Katie Holmes isn't a good actress, but when you're looking at the calibre of this cast, I mean, we get it now on superhero movies, but again, back in 2005, you'd be lucky to get uh, a single big name actor for a superhero stuff. And it very commonly wasn't the lead. It was the villain or... Someone else of that nature. Like, I think back to Batman and Robin again. And Arnold Schwarzenegger was the get. I mean, they had George Clooney, but he was this is George Clooney fresh off ER. This wasn't movie star George Clooney. You know, he was a fraction of the price of Arnold at the time. uh And you go look before that, you go Batman Forever. The money was spent on Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones. Not on Val Kilmer, uh, and then uh, the two Michael Keaton movies: Jack Nicholson, huge get, and Michelle Pfeiffer and uh, De- uh,
0: Danny, Danny DeVito. DeVito. Yeah,
1: these will and Christopher Walken. That's where the money was spent again on the villain side, not on See, the hero yeah. side. It's a big difference, then, isn't it? This, yeah, it is in, because,
0: like, in those Batman films, the Academy Award winners were the villains. Yeah. Now we've got Michael Caine, Morgan Freeman, yeah. Gary Oldman. You know all these, you know, prestigious actors, but they're playing yeah. playing yeah. the good and, guys. The,
1: and and the come ups like Killian Murphy, Murphy, and you know people of that nature. Like, oh wow! Like of course, of course, that's who you went for. And in later movies, you know, jo- Joseph Gordon-Levitt for. Ah, uh, Dark Knight Rises. Like they and Christian Heath Ledger was, ex, you know, like he was kind of going going to be the next big thing from from Batman, uh, the Dark Knight. But yeah, like Christopher Nolan was like, like, yeah, you know, if you use like name actors, like quality actors, it's a lot easier to make a quality product. People pay money for.
0: Yeah, that's it. Katie Holmes, though, she does have a good line in the movie which has more than a good line but one in particular it's not who you are underneath it's what you do that defines you and then of course towards the end of the movie bale or batman repeats it back to her and then she recognizes hey you're bruce and then he jumps off the rooftop it's a great moment and yeah and she yeah. she sets up that scene with a line of dialogue yeah and then you know in in credit to
1: the writers she is like uh I don't. I'm don't care about how much corruption there is. I'm going to stick to my guns and like actually prosecute like the defense to the best of my ability, even if it means calling out the scumbag to his face and put me maybe in the harm's way. Um, it's just, as I said, when you look at the cast, especially now, uh, compared to then, you're like wow, they, they really
0: like paid out on the, for all the male actors. But again, oh. she's, she's good. It's just in comparison. And I have mentioned him already, Gary Oldman, Detective oh. Sergeant James Gordon. I mean, I don't think they're ever going to top Oldman as Gordon ever. No, because again,
1: hearkening back to the, uh, the 90s batman movies it was it wasn't a bad actor but he's also barely in the movies the
0: james gordon a lot older
1: pat um, hingle that was the yeah. actor
0: and i've always seen that commissioner gordon in name only yeah he didn't have the relationship to batman and he wasn't a proper gordon so to get gary oldman as gordon who with that mustache glasses, he looks like Gordon from the comics. He looks just like him. You know, originally they wanted Chris Cooper. Who I,
1: That's just having who, been big in the uh, born identity,
0: I'm like, oh, yeah,
1: I, got, I can understand Chris Cooper, but I mean, Gary Oldman's a far better get.
0: But until this film, think about it, Gary Oldman, he was the bad guy. In pretty much everything,
1: yeah, the professional. So it
0: would have been quite unusual Fifth having element. him play the good guy in this. But wow, so he really played against type as Commissioner yeah, Gordon yeah. or at the time Sergeant Gordon. But yeah, he yeah. he's perfection. Like he yeah. he is so good in this movie. So you, like what you were saying before, when you got Bale in the costume as Batman, you know whether it's Liam Neeson or Gary Oldman, you need a really good actor who isn't in a costume to be delivering everything else that Bale can't do with the restrictions he has in the suit. And just having a rooftop scene, Batman, Gary Oldman, doesn't get better than that. No, no, it doesn't. Um,
1: I mean, unfortunately, he didn't have anything to do for the Snyder movies when they used J.K. Simmons, and he's already been replaced by jeffrey wright another oh, fine but, actor
0: yeah no but the dc is still moving forward we're getting a batgirl movie on hbo max there's still room for for his gordon but the jeffrey but wright he's, got, he's gonna be like just i mean the batman the bat reeves movie that's its own continuity altogether yeah completely Although, separate
1: but bo- both of them that the work's cut out for him if i've you know, they're, they're measuring themselves against the high bar that is Gary Holdman. I mean, honestly, like
0: if an actor was born to play a role, him as Gordon, like when he's in the patrolman uniform at the beginning with young Bruce, and then throughout the trilogy, he's just, he is phenomenal. And his mustache is incredible. Like <laughs> he's such, yeah. he just looks like Gordon from the page. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, it is. Um, I can't say
1: enough good things about Gary Oldman. And this was also, like you said, being uh, going against type and also not being really that big in American movies, more European movies and British film. This was his like launch pad to be like, Oh yeah, you, you, we don't need a, a, a high quality caliber actor. Who's a bit older to be in this movie. Like we should try and get Gary Oldman. Like it really opened things up for him from this point on yeah sticking with the british actors uh killian murphy as dr jonathan crane the scarecrow and i going into the movies to see this i was only familiar with him
0: from the movie red eye (laughs) right for me 28 days later that was the film that i knew him from red eye i believe was the same year as this the wes craven movie yeah yeah, um, where he's like the psychopath
1: on the plane next to Rachel McAdams. Um, I think that's
0: revealed midway through the movie, so apologies if you've, <laughs> not, if you've not seen that movie from 2005. But yeah, for yeah. me, 28 Days Later, zombie movie, intense film. And then, yeah, then, then saw him in this. You know, I did read that apparently he auditioned for Batman but Nolan sense. really liked him he got cast as Scarecrow at one time though Nolan didn't want him to wear the mask it was God huh. that talked him into actually having him wear the mask which it's a great looking mask i mean this was the first time we'd get to see scarecrow in in live action which yeah. was you know pretty pretty cool but there was a thing as well that apparently Nolan really liked his eyes. He really liked Killian Murphy's eyes. I think like a really like a light pale blue. Yeah. And that is why in the film, quite often, you see him taking off his glasses because Nolan Ah. wanted attention drawn to his eyes.
1: That was the thing uh... that was happening.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, You could get lost in those eyes.
1: (laughs) That's it. Like a Michael Caine has shown up in a lot of Nolan movies since this. And that's it, yeah. Same with Tom, yeah. Tom Hardy as
0: well. If he likes you, he'll keep bringing you back. That's the thing. um, Tom Wilkinson, Carmine Falcone. Wow. He is so good in this. And, you know, we're talking about where had we seen these actors before? For me, the full Monty. Isn't that yep, same? <laughs> is yeah, it, I couldn't name I couldn't name
1: another I, I couldn't name another movie that Tom Wilkinson was in other than these two. Uh and also going from his his standard British accent to his like kind of Brooklyn-y gangster accent, which he pulled off because he's he's a character larger than life. He's yeah. used to like getting to his, the way he is. Like uh the opening scene when you're seeing young Bruce in his bar like it approaching him. Like you just killed John Joe chill. And I, um I'm showing you that I'm not afraid of, you, you know, he's, he's big and he's aggressive and, mm. and he's that sort of stuff. And then after he, Bruce gets dragged away, he looks, he just, he's back in his chair and he's comfortable. and He just gives a look around, like making sure no one's trying to give him the eyes. Like, like, like I'm top dog. Like, don't look at me.
0: Like, like I'll, like you can be next. Yeah, he, he handles it so well. He absolutely commands that scene, and then later on at the docks when he's strung up on the on the light, and it's the first yeah. bat signal that we that we get to see. It's pretty cool. Later on, when they get yeah. an actual bat signal, what Gordon says something on the lines of like, you know, I couldn't find a mob boss, or there was yeah. no mob bosses lying around. This will have to do. Yeah. But yeah, Wilkinson is is so good in this. That sequence in the docks, when you first see Batman appear and the goons are looking around, it's nighttime. So well done.
1: It is so yeah. well
0: done. And there's that bit where the guy goes, Where are you? And he's hanging upside down. I'm here. And the scream. Ah, oh, it's it's yeah. brilliant.
1: And the sound is really cranked up there. Like when you're hearing like the woof, woof and the bass, it really
0: Like makes you kind of start to feel a bit like, I don't like this. It's so loud. It's so well done. Like he has him appear like a creature of the night. And I'm pretty sure in that scene, we see maybe the only use of a batarang. It's not something that's featured in the Nolan films, I think, outside of this one. And what I'll say about the batarangs, and we see it earlier on when they're putting the suit together and he's filing them off and he's making the shape. Tiny, so small. tiny. They are so also, tiny. <laughs>
1: like they are very stabby looking. Like in the comics, they're always kind of like depending on who you who he's fighting, they always kind of depict him as something blunt that's used as a knockout weapon. Or, but these are like no, no, no. I'm I'm
0: basically throwing knives at you. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Yeah, you know, I do like that whole sequence where you actually get to see him and Alfred putting the suit together, like ordering yeah. different parts from different companies and different sub-companies and making the purchases, getting things in bulk. Oh, it, ah, yeah, really, yeah, I really like that. You know, much of Batman's gear and apparel, including his cape and suit, is actually based on real-life military technology.
1: Yeah. I guess um... they kind
0: of referenced that in the film as well, but it would be too expensive to... A mass producer I like that they've gone for that real world approach, but at the same time, they've given us a bat suit. But at the same time, he's still got that issue that other Batman had. He can't really turn his head, can he? His neck no, stiff. But, it's not yeah, until the Dark Knight where the essential it looks more like a, like a bike helmet.
1: And yeah, the and that was a big design thing that they learned from this movie, which they if they had talked to previous directors and actors would have known like, Oh yeah. When you put that cow on you, you turn and it just like <clears throat> peels off your face. So you end up
0: having to like turn your whole body. But it's always, it's always worked for the character because Batman's meant to be odd. It's a yeah. guy dressed as a bat. So his movements have always been a little bit off. Like we get it when Rachel's been poisoned and he's, racing in the batmobile to the cave and he's just he's turning to look at her like you know he's like "Shine, rachel and i mean the car is ridiculous i mean it's a tank there's that great bit where the police officer is in his car and he's like you know can you give me a description what does it look like and the tumbler passes him by okay got it (laughs) yeah yeah he's in a black Tank. <laughs> <laughs> and that was great earlier. Like we've not mentioned Morgan Freeman yet, or not actually spoken about him properly. As Lucius Fox and all the interactions that him and Bruce have, and with the with the tank or the tumbler, and he's like, "Does it come in black?" Like, yes. Yeah. It's. I enjoyed every time I watch this. It's. It's such a joy because that first Michael Keaton movie, it was already Batman. We'd not had a live action origin really until no. this movie. And it was just handled, handled so well. Yeah.
1: Um, and also with the Tumblr, this was, this was an experimental, like full size, full scale, custom built uh, vehicle. Like the suspension on the front of it, that was, I mean, they go, Oh, we kind of really want to keep that open. We don't want to have a, like you just, Grab some car off the lot and like chop and change it a little bit, like we really you know look at the model like the way we figured this out, like we kind of really want this, and the company had to figure it out, and you know it, it are you like, oh, we need it to have a these we want it's we need to have two or three versions, one that has a cockpit that actually does big opening up things that's not practical and one that has to drive around, and they have the ones that drive around, and like they go it could go fast, it could go that fast because you know we're driving these sequences at 80 90 miles an hour um for the chase sequences and they thought it was going to break they're like it doesn't need to last a movie but it needs to be fast enough to do the chases so when they prove it through an actual concrete barrier they're like oh that that'll that'll wreck it and nope bash through no problem <laughs> bash through everything else they go you know we 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 drove this off ramps and throwing it through traffic and bashing other cars and like it was it was a tank like you know we didn't intend it to be that strong we just intended it to look that way and be able to perform on the level we did and you know it's it it became immediately iconic i think i mean accidentally housemate has the uh hot toys and it Ah, is it's cool like all the little lights come on like that you see in the movie. And it is cool in that meter long toy as it is when you're watching the film,
0: you're like, Oh, I could do with one of those. I was going to say they accidentally built a real Batmobile. Normally film cars can't do what they do in the films, but the fact that it's breaking through concrete. Yeah. Like famously the
1: Tim Burton Batmobile, my personal favorite Batmobile uh as good as it looked you know that's all like custom fiberglassing over the top for the the body shape on the wheelbase which was taken from a real car uh using a real V8 engine but because of the weight of all of the fiberglass it couldn't go very fast nor could it turn very well it, it became kind of an impractical even car in the film it couldn't really turn <laughs> no so that, but yeah, like, but they, they look so cool. And everyone's it like, who cares, who, cares, who cares if we can't
0: drive like a car? Still, cool. still my favorite. You know, the Tumbler fits this movie, looks great, but it's not the best looking Batmobile. It does. It's more of a tank than a, than a Batmobile, but it does yeah. work really well. And you mentioned the Hot Toys. They're about to release a Lego Tumbler. You know, I <laughs> did the Batmobile from 89. Well, they're doing a Lego yeah. one for this. That will be cool. A lot of pieces. Yeah. (laughs) But Morgan Freeman is in it. Yes. He's Lucius. First time we get that character in live action. We'd had him in the comics, in animation before. And it's Morgan Freeman. What more (laughs) can you or do you need to say? He is absolutely fantastic. I mean, the the scene where, where Bruce wakes up and he'd been exposed to Crane's gas and you've got in a scene, Christian Bale, stood at his bedside, you've got Michael Caine, and you've also got Morgan Freeman. That is a lot of talent on screen. I love the banter between Lucius and Alfred.
1: Yeah, and the the way they, they talk to each other about what it is that they want or need, but they do it in a code of like playing on gassing yourself again well you know lucius you're at a club and someone's handing out a <laughs> weaponized hallucinogen, yeah like it yeah. like a party drug and you're like it it's all well done they have these you know morgan freeman carries that like little s- sharp smile with like yeah. a knowing look like he's he's utter perfection
0: so like, well like
1: done. so much of the cast like yeah. like to the point of if Oh, they, oh, more likely when they need to recast a Lucius Fox for one of these movies, like they are really gonna
0: have a hard time. Yeah, competing against. I mean, they, Freeman. They did it on TV on the the show Gotham. They had a, a young Lucius Fox on that. Lucius is dead in the Arrowverse, and it's his yeah, son Luke Fox. Yeah,
1: who do, also does a really great job. But he's he's not carrying the kind of uh, gravitas of someone of what you'd expect, like you know someone of a, a higher age, like Lucius, like mm-hmm. Morgan Freeman, who's worked for a company long enough to be high up in that company with that amount of experience and intelligence that would come with it. Um. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean,
0: yeah. I no, can think of some actors who yeah. you
1: might be able to get, but you're talking the same sort of like
0: age and expense. But it's like Over we're talking Morgan about Freeman. with Gary Oldman. It's like they've peaked, they've cast yeah. the best commissioner Gun. Yeah. They've peaked with Lucius. Like they've done it. <laughs> you know, they've... yeah. So good. What do you need it for, Mr. Wayne? Splunking.
1: <laughs> splunking?
0: Yeah, you know, <laughs> cave diving.
1: Yeah, yes. I know what splunking is. Like, why you've yeah. are you running run too much gunfire in these caves? <laughs>
0: So good. We've got Rutger Hauer as William Earl. And what I always remember from his character, did you get the memo? <laughs> or didn't you get the memo? Yeah. I get thrown around a couple of times and so good. And and he's so good and slimy in this. He's, he's what to... you expect from that someone of that business ilk.
1: Someone who it's about the money and... uh. I control where the destiny of this company's going. No one else, including the owner. <laughs> uh, and he's he's always had that quality. In fact, it's probably the the bulk of the work I've seen from him in his later career. Um, and again, when it was when I was seeing the the cast list before the movie came out, I'm like, oh, Rutger Hauer, that's a good get. I mean, probably the most famous for Blade Runner um but blind guess... fury
0: that was a movie <laughs> i grew up watching that's what i knew him from
1: yeah um yeah great i mean, doesn't get a lot because his character doesn't get a lot of screen time nor is he required he's the non-batman interacting business guy from the company that batman
0: owns <laughs> well he he yeah so he's essentially bruce wayne's villain yeah and Ra's al Gul is batman's villain
1: yeah um but yeah he's he's great i mean you can't say anything bad about him um and then you've got as crooked uh, detective Fl- Flass, mark boone jr who i think most people might probably be familiar with him from sons of anarchy
0: absolutely elvis <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's so good in sons and, and yeah and, he, and he's is good in this like he's such a dick like yeah, when he goes, yeah. to the, goes to the guy in the falafel stand and he's like he's just taking his cash and he's like hey flas i got kids it is like what they don't like falafel and that's yeah. just before batman strings him up yeah uh, which is a and great you know, interrogation scene yeah, and you yeah, clearly hasn't done
1: some like on the ground police work for a long time. Because why would he need to? He just he just needs to he gets his payday from Carmine Falcone.
0: Um, well, I mentioned some of the inspirations that they looked at. I mean, Long Halloween, you're getting a lot of the mob bosses from there. Well, yep. Flas, like he was pretty prominent in year one, wasn't he? Yeah,
1: um, yeah, and. Like boom, like he does such a good job. It's uh he's a character you instantly want to hate. Like he's like, oh, he's a crooked cop, and you're like, oh, I can see this guy being a crooked cop. In fact, I'd be I'd I'd be hard pressed to see him as a uh, cop who was on the level. <laughs> ever, yeah, ever, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. It's like the only reason is he is because he gets a pension that he wouldn't get as a cop as a out and out criminal. Um, but yeah, it's yeah great casting um also in season 1 and 2 of the mandalorian as like a go between for the mandalorian on hiring for like for work um was it season 1 and 2 no it was just season 1 in the the highest episode of se- episode
0: 6 of season 1 but i don't i don't remember him from that is he is he playing a humanoid or is he yeah a... yeah
1: he's just he just looks like himself Huh. uh he meets mando and he he just the guy goes this is the job you go with this guy this guy this guy and they all fly off and he stays on his little space station that okay. gets blown up at the end i don't but, remember um, yeah
0: from that. nice to see he's still working but yeah he's greatness it really is and back when i first watched this i should say as well i went to the midnight screening of this film and it was incredible it was it was such a good time. Me and the mates went to watch it. It was, yeah, so good. And it wasn't until later viewings that I even noticed Victor Zaz, even though they say his name, even though you see that he's got the markings cut into his skin. Yeah. So, I, yeah, for quite a few viewings, I missed this other DC villain that was in the movie. And he's played by yeah. Tim Booth. Yeah. Um, and
1: then... There's a few more actors of note or characters of note. Thomas Wayne, played by Linus Roach, who, great job. I mean, I think that, that he's been cast specifically to, like when you slick back when you uh, Christian Bale's hair and you slick back Roach's hair, you can see some similar features in terms of the face because he needs to look like a, like they're related. Um and he the the like why do we fall Bruce so we can learn to pick ourselves, his line delivery he's yeah he really is the anchor point in all the scenes he's in. Obviously he's not having to act directly opposite Christian Bale, you know he's acting against Young Bruce Gus Lewis for the most most part, but really good. I usually when it comes to Thomas Wayne, in fact I, I think with the exception of Linus Roach all other Thomas Wayne's jobs have just been simply to get shot in slow motion in this,
0: in some sequence in a yeah. Batman movie. He is. Yeah. He's definitely getting more to do here. And the actual origin is different as well. Like they'd not just been to see Zorro at the movies. Yeah. They'd seen Instead, an opera
1: where featuring bats. Yeah.
0: Bruce was reminded the fast movements, the bats and when he fell into the well at the beginning of the movie. So that was a big change that they went. Apparently, Nolan didn't want that association with Zorro and wanted to lean more into the bats.
1: Yeah, um, which makes sense. You know, it is something he keeps for the character of, like, he has a fear of bats, even as an adult. It's when he's training with the League of Shadows, it's bats that come to him as his fear, not a guy with a gun or anything of that nature. It's the bats because that's too, that's a lot more primal than, like, the flash of a gun um but yeah it's and they don't fetishize the pearls either which is something i've always like appreciated for christopher nolan because it is you watch any sequence of the death of the Waynes in any film and the, they, they
0: really yeah <laughs> they really zone in on the pearls in that one yeah yeah
1: slow motion as you watch them hit bead by bead into a <laughs> wet street like yeah and he's like no it, it was quick that's why there was like no way to react. And like, he got away, like, you know, which traditionally, you know, like Joe chill was something they brought out in the comics at some point, but you know, traditionally in Batman mythos, it was a random crime that had no solve, which the unanswered question of who was responsible for killing his parents is the Batman drive, but you don't need to. The fact that he can't get vengeance is enough for this. And he still feels the shame, and there's the Carmine Falcone thing of like you don't know desperate, you don't know like ang- you don't know like uh de- like what it is to be a criminal. You don't understand any of this stuff. You're always gonna fear it, and it's like it's a really smart and intelligently in- constructed, uh, reasoned out uh psychological character motivation it's throughout sexual. this whole film.
0: Perfectly. And some have compared it to Doctor Strange's origin, but he'll goes off and he trains. and He's not with the monks, but he's with the ninjas. Yeah, it's a really, it's a good setup. And then, yeah, him giving that motivation and he needs to go and live as a criminal to understand them. Yeah, it's very, very well told in this. We've not talked about the music or the score at all and it is incredible now i can say now that working composer hans zimmer is my number 1 I absolutely yeah. love hans zimmer and wow what he what he's given us here because you know going into this movie we all love the daniel Elfman batman theme it's iconic it was a big
1: it was big shoes to fill I mean, they make jokes on, on Family Guy of like, John Williams, no, who have we got left? Danny Elfman, ah. Oh. But like Danny, that, that Batman theme that Danny Elfman came up with, which for those who watched the Batman animated cartoon as well, I mean, the opening theme sequence of that, although worked on further by the show's composer, who was also brilliant, that was as iconic for Batman as yeah. the John Williams theme
0: is for Superman. And that was that, it. And like, you know, we, we talked about Superman Returns already. John Ottman yeah. was the composer in that film, but he was pretty much just using the John Williams music. Like that's essentially what we mainly got for that. Yeah, they... retooled
1: with the orchestra to fit the emotional scenes that did not feature Superman. Yeah, and uh, yeah, So those are the sort of shoes that Hans Zimmer had to fill
0: and not just and Hans Zimmer. In. We've also got James Newton Howard and it was Hans, it was his idea to bring on James Newton Howard. And the idea is that they were going to be scoring a film with a character who had a dual personality. So you'd have tracks where one composer would be doing Batman, the other one would be doing Bruce Wayne and kind of meshing the two. So like it sounds like two composers because it's Two sides of one person's personality—such an interesting approach. And I didn't realize at first, right, that every every track title is named after a type of bat. Ah, I never knew that. So I remember, like, first time, just looking at the track listing on the back of the CD, and I'm like, "What is this?" But if you look at tracks four to nine. It actually spells out Batman. <laughs> That's pretty... yeah,
1: it's the pretty. Someone's a Lago.
0: Really clever.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: <laughs> it, it's great. I absolutely love it. And like my enjoyment of Man of Steel went up with my enjoyment of the score. And you know, a good score can add so much to a movie. And it really does with this. At like, the opening, like you get the Warner Brothers logo the dc logo and then you've got the running later you've got like the bats flying they can kind of see the bat symbol and everything's just fast moving and the music just has that
1: quick as it like uh, as, as a bat form into the bat symbol that's when you first get your your horn of the
0: Genius. It's brilliant. Honestly, it is. It is brilliant. Like I absolutely love it. And and the scores for Dark Knight and Rises are both excellent. Also, but this yeah. is the favorite. This this is so good. I remember like just reading about their approach to that like, the Joker's thing, and obviously in the Dark Knight and the way that they prepared the music is they purposely wrote it in a way. That you, that you should never do it that way because it doesn't yeah. sound right. It doesn't play right. They'd use instruments together that you wouldn't know what to put together because it's too jarring. It doesn't off flow. Filter. Like off the filter, the, that's it. Oh, the so, violin strings. So, I love it. So, I mean, what do we have here? So we've got, like, one of the best directors working today. Like, also, one of the writers on the film, we've got David Escoyev. We've got this great caliber of actors. The approach to the filmmaking, the miniatures the stunt work yeah practical sets all of that and then you've got two composers like working so well together i mean wow i think it's clear to anybody listening to this that we both (laughs) really like like this film Uh, but we should probably before we get to our rating we need to talk about the end scene which i've got to be honest like because i mean this movie's on netflix it's it's streaming most places there you go I've got the Blu-rays. Yeah, I've got the Blu-rays. I've got the four
1: Ks. (laughs) It's available to uh, uh, get off Google Play,
0: off Apple TV, off Amazon Prime. It's easily everywhere. Easily available. But what I was going to say, like, whenever I'm scrolling for something to watch, if I come across Batman Begins, I find it hard not to watch the last ten minutes. Yeah. Before like watching whatever I'm gonna watch. And it is is amazing. You've got the Joker playing card presented to Batman. It's around the two-hour, 10-minute So Again, it's pretty much the end of the movie. The the design of the card is a replica of the one scene in the Arkham Asylum graphic novel from 89, written by Grant Morrison and Dave McCain. So I like that connection, but you've just got that amazing dial of exchange between gordon is now lieutenant he's got a promotion after the events of the movie and it's just him and batman back and forth and gordon's with talking the bat about, symbol
1: the proper one yes, for the first
0: time that's it and you've got gordon it's the first talking. meeting on a rooftop not yep. on like outside the, his apartment Talking about escalation, we start carrying semi-automatics. They start buying automatics. We start wearing Kevlar. They buy armor-piercing rounds. You're jumping from rooftops. And is like, take this guy for example. All oh, right, it's it's excellent. I I love it. And then my favorite part about that whole exchange, though, is that when Gordon says, "I never said thank you," Batman looks back at Gordon, and you'll never have to. You get that thumping. Yeah. Batman theme again, and Batman just jumps off the rooftop. Mm. The funny of thing the
1: movie. about that sequence is that was just supposed to be an Easter egg.
0: Really? Nolan
1: hadn't figured out what he was going to do for the second movie yet, um, and didn't want to do the Joker. You know, he was fairly adamant that for all of his Batman movies, should he be able to get to do more, Uh, based on what he hoped would be success for this one, he could use villains like the Mark Webb Spider-Man movies that hadn't previously yet been used. And he was like, no, 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 Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson was the Joker. Like, I'm I'm not going to try and outdo Jack Nicholson. I just thought it would be fun. I I knew fans would get a kick. And he was, you know, looking to go elsewhere, but hadn't made it. But once he put that in there, and the, the, I, the people on the online going nuts for it, the studio execs were like, oh, so we're like, who are you going to get as a Joker? And it was kind of probably the one decision taken out of his hands just because of that little Easter egg of like, do you have to use the Joker? You can't end a movie like that and not deliver on that promise in your next one. Like you've, you've, you've consciously or not made a, an agreement with the audience that if you come back again, we will give you what we promised. Um, but yeah, that's it. It, it. it was never supposed to be a Joker in the sequel. It was never supposed to be Heath Ledger. It was going to be some other person, like a Mister, F- not a Mister Freeze, Kazani, but <laughs> some yet unknown. Because yeah, Batman has so many villains, oh, so, so many, many yet yeah. yet to see on screen, and that was the idea of like you know they've, they've got all these villains I could use. Like, why would I, you know, hem myself in with the most well-known? Yeah, uh, especially well, one that has been
0: played by an academy award winning jack nicholson yeah i'm glad they did i'm glad they i mean the dark knight is a whole other conversation but i'm so glad they ended the movie the way that they did because the tease is brilliant like i remember again i've been screening and it was amazing so i didn't know what we were going to get with this movie and just i didn't expect a tease for the joker which was great but the, the best thing about that it is the it's just Gary Oldman, Baylor's Batman, talking on the rooftop. It's brilliant. And and just the line, I never said thank you and you'll never have to. Perfect. Yeah. It, is, it is perfect because it's like in that quick exchange, that is their relationship. Yeah, so, 100%. I absolutely <laughs> love it. And on that, if you're going to rate this movie out of five, yeah,
1: uh, I'm not gonna beat around the bush for me. This is a perfect film, specifically a perfect Batman film. Um, five out of five. I have always said, and I will always say, for me, this is the best Batman film, bar none. And it's because, as good as the sequel is, The Dark Knight, that is that always comes across to me as a Joker film more than it is a Batman film. And this is the most comics accurate Batman film that we've had. He's having to be a detective. He's having to be out. Think uh, it. He had, you know, he has a cave like in the dark night, he doesn't have a cave. He's working out of like a sub basement somewhere. And, yeah, you know, although you do get to see him do detective work again, he's he's operating a lot during the day, not just at night. Like, it's, this feels for me the most complete, you know, using Scarecrow, like, and Ra's al Ghul, like, two of the, like, the animated version, uh, animated series version of Scarecrow was my first exposure to that character. And it was, I, it made sense to me of, like, yeah, a, a guy who preys on your beers like using toxins like that's easy to do like i mean if you're not prepared for a psychotropic drug i'm sure like that's the first thing that pops up me not being the type to experiment like batman would at a nightclub but yeah everything about this the fact that gotham city was predominantly a set rather than using streets of an actual city that can kind of pull you out of like it's not what gotham is more new york or toronto where they'd most likely film or in case in like Case that they did with these Chicago, yeah, it's top to finish the cast, the cinematography, the direction, the music, the story, how well put together it is.
0: Every element, five out of five. How about yourself? <laughs> well, you've said it like you said everything <laughs> that, that needs to be said, yeah, five out of five. I, I don't even need to think about it. It just is, I've loved this movie since the first start, I've watched it and. It's, again, holds up. It is such a good movie. Yeah, I, I love it. It just, it captures everything that works about Batman and just the performances, everything. Yeah. It is such a good film. And it's, and you mentioned, you know, the sequel, Dark Knight, more of a Joker film. This was the first movie, really, that was a Batman film, actually about Batman. It wasn't playing second or third fiddle to other villains with famous actors playing them. So this is a Batman film through and through, and it's a great origin film. One of the best superhero origin films.
1: Yeah, and we're talking about runtime. This goes for, as you said, about, I think it's two hours and 19 minutes as it shows on Netflix. And it's also the best paced, And the shortest of the Nolan movies, like they only get longer from here. Like as good as the Dark Knight is on rewatches, it does get a bit long in the tooth. And then Dark Knight Rises is even longer again. Like this is what makes this one the most rewatchable for me, or at least contributes to it. The fact that I don't get to like the two and a half hour mark and start thinking like, oh man, I've been here for a while. Like where are we? How much time has gone past? I never, ever on any of my rewatches have thought that about this, where even as good as its sequels are, it they I do feel that I remember. I think it was my second viewing of the cinema for *Bat Dark Knight Rises*. Like I was in the recliner in the cinema, and by the end of that movie, my calves hurt from being <laughs> resting on the 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 footrest. I was like, oh god, I need to put my legs down. I need to stretch. I've been sat here for so long. Um, yeah. Like if you if you haven't watched this movie like it is the very high bar of which all future batman movies must live up to um, yeah. i'm i i think you know, we've touched on it briefly but the matt reeves uh robert Patterson film looks like it has a lot of promise
0: but i mean you, you are really you have your competition set out for you with this yeah one. yeah i'm i'm interested and i want to see the matt reeves movie and that's not just a movie that's a trilogy with multiple tie-in tv series yeah i would have to wait to see what that's going to be but yes this movie an easy easy five out of five yeah well that's it for our episode all about batman begins if you would like to
1: contact us about this episode or suggest a topic for an upcoming episode you can find
0: us on facebook as sounds like comics Podcast. You've been listening to Luke and Jay, the guys from Sounds Like Comics. See you soon.